So we are now in our Honest Prayer Sermon Series, where we're going to look at a different psalm each uh, week. And today we're looking at Psalm number two, which starts off, Why do the nations rage? So today we're going to be talking about how does God handle those who rage against his people, and how can we pray when that happens, when, when, there's, when the world seems like the world is against us. So I do have the handouts the, of the yellow sheets. Hopefully you're able to grab one of those. It has the scripture on one side, and then it's a place for sermon notes on the other. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, I actually want to start off with a story. Thinking about the, the raging of, of the nations. And it comes from East Africa. From this a book I read. It's, it's a little bit dated. The book's from 2013. But um, it's called A Wind in the House of Islam. And it tells about Sheikh Hakim, who grew up uh, possibly in Somalia or one of the other East African countries. And, and his father, um, it's not his real name, by the way, they have to protect the, the names. But his father was a, a zealous, um, very zealous in Islam. And, and that was a very Islamic area. And his father dedicated his son, Hakim, to become what's called a hafez. So from his earliest age, Hakim was given over to the study of the Quran. And he became, a hafez means he's memorized the whole Quran in Arabic. And so that's what he did until age 18 as he studied. And when he finished that, he became a leader, a sheikh amongst his people. And he says that he was taught to hate Christians and to fear them and be against them. He says, if someone told us Jesus was the Son of God, that would be very hard for us to hear. The Quran says if you say that Jesus is God, you become a kafir, a pagan. So if someone said that Jesus was God, we would kill him. And when I was a Muslim, I burned churches for Islam. So he actively worked against the Christians. He was taught to hate them. Um, at some point, he was given a, 
a New Testament in Arabic called an Injil. So it told the story of Jesus in, in the language that he studied in. And so he started to read it. And he was confused by some of the things he read. It didn't match what he had been taught about Jesus. In fact, there's actually some things that went along with his, the, the Quran, enough that he was intrigued. And, and so eventually he just prayed a simple prayer to God. He says, you know my heart. If there's something I must do, show me. Soon after that, he began having dreams. And a shining figure would appear to him in the dream. And then he would see himself um, chopping down a, a mosque, a minaret, which is the, the prayer thing for a mosque. And he kept having that dream over and over again. And eventually, he went and sought out that evangelist who had given him the angel and said, what's going on? And he said, God has his hand on that, that figure you're seeing is Jesus, and you will become one who becomes a, a representative for him and lead many out of Islam to Jesus, lead many to faith in Jesus. And he believed. He put his faith, took the risk, because he knew it was dangerous, and, um, and so he, his family rejected him. His father at one point tried to kill him. Um, but not only did he believe as a sheik, he started leading other sheiks to faith in Christ. He lost his, his paying job. Um, he had to move from town to town because people were killing him. But he was doing what the dream had showed him, what Jesus had shown him in that dream, is he was, he was changing his community. And when this book was written, it said he had seen 400 sheiks in that area come to faith in the Lord. Amen. So, we know that our brothers and sisters in the faith experience hostility, especially in certain areas and certain countries from their culture. That They often experience uh, persecution, and, and we try to think, why, why is it like that? Um, and when we think about the question, what about us? Do, do we face, as believers in Christ in in the U.S., do we face much hostility for our faith? And I've noticed a difference in how you answer that question based on the generations. So that, that was in Ohio. Maybe it's different here. But I, I would sense the older Christians felt very much like the culture that, that we're having right now is somewhat hostile. And they remember the days when the culture was on the side of the church, even when there were laws enforcing, you know, the Sunday Sabbath, and they've seen how far things are going, and so they feel there's a definite hostility against Christianity. I've, but I've also encountered younger Christians who are like, yeah, no, there's differences in culture, not everyone believes, but they, they, they think that's overblown. So I would be curious to hear uh, if that's the same case here, so that maybe the younger people but if I ever had a chance to have a conversation, you know, what, what's, been, what's your perception on this? How much hostility um, do we face as followers of Christ in America? But if you watch the news, you've got to know there's some. When I was in Ohio, waiting to come to New York to move here, 
uh, back in April, I, a, a story caught my attention, and maybe you heard also, as COVID was ramping up and, and looking to be very serious in New York City, the, the ministry Samaritan's person, Evangelical Christian Ministry, went to set up to try to help, to do what they could. So they came to set up a field hospital in Central Park, because they were very afraid that hospitals would overflow in New York. And the city didn't want them. They were protesting. And eventually, I mean, they, they did come and do that for a while, but eventually they kind of got kicked out. And I'm like, that's hostility. You know, that, that, that kind of surprised me and made me think, okay, what am I moving into as I come to New York? But of course, as you all clarified, that's, that's upstate New York's different than, you know, down in the city. So I understand that, right? But, um, but that's still just the news, right? If you're focused on the news, or if maybe Facebook and Twitter and all that, it seems like there's all these stories. Have you really experienced hostility face-to-face -face with somebody you know? I can't say I really have. At least nothing major. So keep that, I try to keep that in perspective. We can always get worked up by stories we see on the news, right? But what about in our interpersonal relationships? Do we see that kind of hostility um, that we're worried about? The question today is, how does God handle it when people rage against him and his people, his chosen people? And how can we pray honestly when we face that hostility? So Psalm 2 begins to address it. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? They, they conspire, they take counsel together and and it's God is the rightful ruler. He's the one that really owns the whole world. And yet the nations and rulers have decided they are going to resist God's rule. They want to break their bonds and decide for themselves what is right and wrong. Not be subject to the authority of God. So Psalm 2, in the context, was written to the people of Israel. And they were the people God had chosen for his own purposes. And they faced constant conflict, constantly facing wars with the, the nations surrounding them. Um, and so there's different references here that, that we'll see throughout the psalm. Uh, so the king of Israel ruled for, from Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the place where Jerusalem is. Um, it also talks about the anointed. You see, in Israel, the kings were not crowned with a crown of gold. Instead, they were anointed by anointed with oil. Now, why why is that? Well, what does a crown suggest about your rule? If you're given a crown, it suggests that your rule is based on your your power and even your wealth. That qualifies you to be king and rule over people. But for God's people, it wasn't that. The oil represented God's Holy Spirit. Amen. And what enabled someone to be king was not their power and wealth, but God's Spirit upon them. And so it was a different way. So when they said the anointed, they meant the king. And it talks about how they would rule over 
the, the nations, this king, this anointed, would rule over the nations. Well, in, in the, for a time, that actually happened. In the time of David and his son Solomon, Israel was preeminent of, of the nations. They, they were ruling over the, uh, the Syrians and the Arameans and all, all these other nations. And even the Queen of Sheba brought tribute to Solomon. Maybe you know that story. Um, that didn't last very long. But for a time, they did kind of have that preeminent spot. And so I think the psalmist, as he's making this prayer, that's what he's picturing. He's thinking of their king in Israel and asking God that he would be protected as they face all these conflicts, maybe potential wars that are going to take place. But I think there is more going on here than just that. There's clues that there's actually a bigger picture. And one of them is simply this, the word anointed. Um, where does it say? Verse 4. I have too many notes. I lost my place. Back in verse 2. It says, against the Lord, so that's God, and against his anointed. Well, if, if you would look in the Greek version of this, that word anointed is the word Christ. Against the Lord and against his Christ. Ultimately, the people of this world are rebelling against God. And they're resisting the Son of God. Today you are my Son, the Son of God, who came to bring God's love to us. There's this human tendency we've had ever since Adam and Eve that we want to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We want to be to, uh, to have self-determination over our lives rather than being um, having God's rule upon us. So, we, so there's this human tendency to, to want to break our chains, to, to free ourselves from God's authority over us. And when something reminds us of God's claim upon our life, how do we respond? We get angry. You can't tell me what to do. We rage in our hearts against the God of the universe. We insist we should be free of any limits to our self-determination, free of any chains and shackles. You ever see that in the world? That tendency to react in anger? So how does God respond to a world that rages against him? So verses Four and five, God does four things. First of all, God laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God does not need our worship to be happy. God is completely self-sufficient. He is not worried whether people like him or not. You know, we're used to the politicians who, if, if enough people get angry and chant things, they'll, they'll, they'll change because they don't want people to be mad at them. God's not that way. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He lives in light and perfect joy. And, and he wants to bring us into his joy. That's his goal is to, to bring us into the, that joyful nature that he has in himself. But our refusal to enter it does not take his joy away. So God laughs. He's not afraid of the people. 
Secondly, God scoffs. He says he holds them in derision. Uh, the NIV says scoffs. I like that better. Through his word, he shows us how insufficient we are. That the stories in scripture point us to truths that we don't often hear, that, that we have a lot of hypocrisy in our life. We get mad at things up when other people do the same things that we do ourselves. Someone cuts us off in traffic, they're a jerk. At best, I'm sure there's other words you might have applied. But we cut off someone in traffic, well, they're just, you know, they can wait, right? You know, we are, all of us are hypocrites on this. We get angry at people for doing the same things that we do ourselves. God scoffs. We can't live up to our own standards for our life. How, how could we think we could apply them to someone else? Third, God rebukes. God allows or even brings upon us situations that, that show us the fruit of our lives. Reality has a way of intruding into the situation. And God rebukes us by allowing us to face the consequences of our own decisions. And then lastly, God terrifies. When we realize how little power we actually have in life, it is terrifying. Our, our body betrays us, right? When you're young and in your 20s, you can do anything. But slowly, your body starts to, to give way. Our frailty betrays us. And then we realize our mortality. And we come to know that one day we will die. A terrifying concept. The, the verse that keeps coming to mind for me out of this is James 1.20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In the midst of it, does not anger feel so right? Like when you're angry at something, you, you feel like you are in justified in that anger, that you are righteous in your anger, that, that, that now standing outside, you might see it differently. But in the midst of it, our anger feels right. But what, what this says is the anger of man does not make us righteous does not measure up to the righteousness of God. And even more, the word righteousness and justice are really the same word. The anger of men cannot bring the justice we want, the justice that God wants for us. It doesn't matter how much we rage. It will not bring good results that we're hoping for. So what is God's ultimate so those four gives us a, a, a flavor of how God reacts. But what is God's ultimate reason? We see that in verse 6. And this is awesome. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's ultimate response, his plan for dealing with the rage and anger of the nations is best expressed in John 3.16. For God so loved this world, the people of this world who raged against him, that he gave 
his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. You see, he set his king on Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. And God gave his one and only Son. Later it says, uh, you are my son today, I have begotten you. The one and only begotten Son of God gave his life on Mount Zion as he was crucified on the cross. He gave his life to pay the price for our sin. And there was a sign over his head at that moment. Anyone know what that sign read? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I have installed my king on Mount Zion. That's when Jesus was installed as king. Not when he, he exercised power, but when he gave up all power and allowed the rage and anger of this world to fall all upon him in one moment. And now, God raised him from the dead and he sits at the right hand of God. Now he has been raised again to life and he has been set as king of all. Um, says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus is the rightful king over the entire world. It is all his possession, not just Israel. Uh, the one life group I jumped in on, they were studying Revelation 5. And we kind of talked about that. And um, here's my take on Revelation 5, and for, for those who are part of that. That is the, the installation of Jesus as king. It's describing Jesus being raised up as, as the one who's now being worshipped as king. Amen. So, if he's king, what is his rule like? Well, back to Psalm 2, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh-oh. That sounds kind of harsh. Well, the Hebrew word can be translated break them. Will break them with the rod of iron. Or it could also be translated rule them. And again, I went to the Greek version of this to see if there's any help on that. And in the Greek version, it says, you will shepherd them with a rod of iron. So he will rule them as a shepherd. The rod of iron signifies his firmness and strength. He has the ability to protect his people. But God is not here, the Lord is not sent as king to destroy people. He's not here to try to crush people. The, the, the thing that has to be crushed are the powers of this world that keep people from experiencing his rule. Those he will come against and dash to pieces. The spiritual powers that keep us from turning to him. This echoes also in John 3. We see the same thing. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation. He didn't come to crush people. He came for our salvation. Then Psalm 2 closes with a warning. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And the warning is simple. You better get right with the Son. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. In the context of, of the psalmist, that's thinking, all oh, you nations who are fighting against Israel, you better stop fighting and, and 
accept the rule of the king of Israel. But for us now, it is, it is speaking to all of us. How are you going to respond to God's power? Serve the Lord with fear. Recognize God's power and authority. Rejoice with trembling. Isn't that an odd phrase? How do you rejoice with trembling at the same time? I think there's a word for that that we have that, that we use so often maybe we don't actually know what it is. That word is awe. To be in awe of something means you're a little bit afraid, right? It's like, it's so powerful. But yet it's not a, a bad afraid. It is a good afraid. Our God is an awesome God. Amen. And when we behold him, his power is beyond our comprehension. And, and this is saying, kiss the sun. Get connected to the one whom God has sent to fix this world. Get connected to the one who, who came to bring us life. It is only by coming to a relationship with the Son of God, with Jesus, that we can avoid the destruction of sin. If we reject that way, that God has provided for our salvation, what is there left but destruction? And so Psalm 2 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What an awesome God we serve. He is able to save his people. But instead of seeking to just crush his enemies, those who rage against him, he shows kindness. He shows grace and love. His goal is to soften their hearts that they might too join and become part of his people. Like Hakeem did, who was taught to hate burned down churches, and now he's part of the team. What an awesome God we serve. How should this lead us to prayer? I got three, three basic things. First one is anger versus rage. I talked last week about how God does not want you to pretend everything is okay when that's, that's not where you're at. You can bring your true feelings to God in prayer. And that includes anger. Um, we can be angry with God in prayer and we can bring that feeling of anger and hurt and, and pray it out with him. Honestly tell him how we feel. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 51, 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. If we come to him as we are, he will not despise. He will hear us. That's anger. Rage is different. Rage is being angry, but with a closed heart. Not being willing to listen to the other side. Not being willing to let God in enough to heal our hearts. When we rage against God, we shut out God and any word he might bring to us. So that's the first thought I have about how to pray. The second one is confidence versus defensiveness. In the midst of feeling like there's hostility aimed at you, what's our natural response? Go defensive, right? To, to turn inward, to protect ourselves. I fear that that has become the response of 
of American Christians. We sense there's more hostility, so we have become defensive. Um, we focused on our own protection. We are on guard against those people out there who don't like us. We feel like we have to defend ourselves. You see, that defensiveness can keep us from really serving God, from really loving people, from even loving our enemies that God would have us do. It can keep us from lifting up the grace of, of Jesus. So instead of being defensive, we should be confident. No power on earth can take us out of the hands of our Savior. We're safe in him. So what if the culture criticizes us? So what if the culture makes movies that make fun of us? That's okay. You know, so what if they're writing articles that, that mock and deride us? Or what if they defund our websites? We have, we have Jesus. Amen. We don't need to be defensive. We trust in the protection of our God. And lastly, three, boldness versus fearfulness. We, we actually have a clue about how to um, use Psalm 2 to pray because the early church did it. it it's awesome. They, they quote Psalm 2 as a prayer for their situation in Acts chapter 4. Let me just summarize it real quick. But, I, but to tell you the story, i got to back up. So it starts in Acts 3. Peter and John, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, are heading to the temple. And as they're, they're walking to the temple, there's a man sitting on the temple steps who's, who's paralyzed. And he's been that way for a long time. And so he has his spot, his begging spot, outside the temple. And, and he looks at Peter and John thinking, maybe they'll give me a coin. And Peter says, silver or gold, I have not to give, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And he does it. God heals him on the spot. Amen. Guy stands up. He starts walking around. But he doesn't just walk. Like, what would you do? You haven't walked in ages, maybe your whole life. He's not walking. He's skipping. Right? He's jumping. He's, and, and a crowd starts to, to, to gather around. Like, they want to see what's going on. Like, what? And some of them recognize him. And that draws more of a crowd. So what do you think a preacher's going to do when he all of a sudden has a crowd he wasn't expecting to have? <laughs> Peter starts talking about Jesus. Hey, here's why this guy is healed, because there's this guy, Jesus, and, and you know, he's crucified, but it's okay, he's raised from the dead, and God's given us salvation, and he tells the whole story. Um, well, there's a problem. This is like in the temple. And the people in charge of the temple, like the priests and the Sanhedrin, they were the ones that kind of put Jesus to death. So, or at least they kind of organized having him put to death. And so they don't like this message. So they have Peter and John arrested. John, by the way, is kind of the quiet one. Um, but but he's, he's like right there with him. But Peter's the talker, so Peter does all the talking. And, and so, but they're both together arrested. And, and they tell them. And then Peter, again, now he has the whole leadership of this country right there. So he starts preaching again. Hey! Let me tell you about Jesus, and they don't want to hear it. But he goes on to say, "This is this is the this is the way God gave. There's no other name in heaven or earth by which we can be saved." And, and he's all excited, and and secretly, the the Sanhedrin are kind of impressed, but they ain't going to tell them, right? Instead, they're like, "You guys got to stop this. We command you." You know, they they looked all tall and looked down on. 
we command you as the Sanhedrin to stop preaching in the name of this man. They wouldn't even say Jesus, right? And Peter and John say, well, you, you guys got to help us here. Which should we do? Should we obey God or should we obey you? They're having fun with it. So anyways, but they, they send them out with, if you don't do what we say, we will do something bad to you. They threaten them, command them, order them. Remember, this is the same group that sent Jesus to be crucified by the Romans. So they have power. So Peter and John go back, and they come to the church. A group like this. They probably weren't as socially separated as we are. They're probably a smaller room. But anyway, they come back to the church, and they say, here's what happened. And they say, we better pray. And so they, they, they all very seriously, they, they start to pray and say, God, we're so scared. They, they've threatened us. These are the leaders of our people. God, would you protect us? It's not what they pray. <laughs> Let me read it. It says, when they released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Does that sound familiar? Right? So they're quoting Psalm 2. They're seeing their situation as like, hey, that's what they were talking about in Psalm 2. But God has given us the anointed one in Christ. And they, they pray some more, but it comes down to they make two requests. Here's the things they ask God to do. They ask God to I have it down here. Okay, so what do they actually ask for? One, boldness to speak the word. Amen. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Lord, don't let our fear Get a hold of us. Don't let us be ruled by our fear. Give us the courage to stand strong in the name of your son. And then the second thing they pray, I love this. Lord, do more, do more miraculous signs. Right? That's, that's what got them in trouble in the first place, right? They healed, healed a paralyzed man. Do more of that. Give us opportunities to gather a crowd so that we can tell them about your son. Amen. That is how early church handled the hostility that they were facing. Friends, do you feel like there is increased hostility against the people of God, the church in America? Have you, and, and how have you tended to react to it? How, is, how has that made you feel in your spirit? And then lastly, what would it look like if we prayed as confidently and boldly as the early church did. What would it look like if we prayed like they did? Father, I just thank you that we can trust you, that we need not let fear rule our hearts, that we are your people. We belong to you, and no one can take us out of your hands. So, Father, we ask that you too would give us the boldness to stand for Jesus in, in in wise ways, not obnoxious ways. And Lord, give us the wisdom to love the people around us and give us opportunities. Do miracles through us so that we can lift up the name of your son through them. 
We ask all this in his name.